Today's scripture reading is in Matthew 11, chapters 20, uh, verses 25 through 30. You can find that on page 816 in the uh, Bibles in the pews. So Matthew 11, 25 to 30, page 816. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's good to be with you and to open up God's Word. We've all heard the saying, and we probably said it, there's no rest for the weary. Amen? Is that how a lot of us feel this morning? Probably most of us feel worn out this morning in some way or another. You may be physically tired. I don't know how much sleep you got this past week. Emotionally, perhaps, there's little or nothing left in your tank to give out. Or maybe you're spiritually weary of trying to live the perfect Christian life or what others expect of you. Maybe you're weary from trying to live up to others' expectations of you or your own. But you know when you really get worn out? Here's my experience, and maybe it rings true with you. It's when you have poured out everything you have, when you've given your best as a parent, as a Christian leader, as a teacher, as a counselor, as a friend, and you feel like you have little or nothing to show for it. In fact, It seems that the person you've invested in maybe has turned on you or walked away. And that's when you really feel wearied. Moms of young children, can I get an amen or are you too tired to even say amen? (laughs) Christian leaders, you know what I mean. Counselors, right? You've invested yourself, you've mentored, you've poured yourself and your energy and your prayers into people and then They turn on you or walk away, and you are worn out. It's one thing to pour yourself into something. Think of a project that you're working on, and you see the completion, and you say, I'm tired, but I'm satisfied. But when you don't see results, it's wearying, and you feel like, I can't go on. Some of you may feel that way about following Christ. You come to church, thank you that you're here this Sunday morning, you're praying, You're reading the scriptures, but God still seems like he's in a different zip code, and you're not close to him, and you're worn out from trying. Well, think about the big picture. The big picture 
is. And again, I'm going to go into a lot of detail, so if you're taking notes, I hope I won't overwhelm you. But remember the big picture. We're going to look at a number of times. When circumstances wear you out, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus again and again. Why? Because he lovingly summons you, he calls you to find your rest and your strength in his sovereign care of you. Come to Jesus, not just once, but again and again, because he's calling you, he's lovingly summoning you to come and find both rest, relief, but strength and energy under his sovereign arms, his care for you. Let's open that up and see what this means. First, let's look at the context of Jesus' invitation going back to Matthew chapter 3 to 10. And because we have limited time, we're going to do a quick helicopter view of Matthew 3 to 10. But you can remember what happens in Matthew chapter 3. John the Baptist shows up on the scene and he's preaching repentance for the sin And he's saying, you need to get baptized if you want to follow the Messiah who's coming. And he's stirring up everybody. They're all coming. Who is this prophet? After 400 years of not hearing from God, God has raised up a prophet. And there's excitement and buzz. And then he baptizes Jesus. And what happens at the baptism? This Holy Spirit comes down as a dove. And God the Father's voice is heard. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And if you're there in Jerusalem or Judea or Jordan at the time, there's excitement in the air. God is doing something. Let's see what he does. And then, moving to chapter 4, verse 23, we have this summary verse that Matthew gives. He says, Jesus went throughout Galilee doing three things, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among men. All right? There's a summary. You say, well, that's a nice summary. But now, look five chapters later at Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. Matthew 9, 35. What do we read there? It says, Jesus went throughout the cities and villages, number one, teaching in their synagogues, number two, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and number three, healing every disease and every affliction. Picture Matthew 4.23 and Matthew 9.35 as bookends, okay? Anybody have, if you've got a shelf of books, maybe you have these bookends that hold books together, and if you're really organized and you go to the uh, Dewey Decimal System, maybe all those books are under the same topic. Maybe not, depending on how OCD you are about it, but imagine that Matthew is setting up these two bookend verses that are identical and saying, in between, Jesus is doing those three things. He's teaching in their synagogues, he's proclaiming the kingdom of the gospel, and he's demonstrating his power in the miracles that he's doing. And indeed, isn't that what we find in Matthew 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9? What's Matthew 5, 6, and 7? The Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is showing his authority in interpreting and fulfilling the Old Testament scriptures. You have heard it said, but I say to you, and Jesus is proclaiming the truth. He's talking about the Father. He's talking about the kingdom. He's showing not just nice beatitudes. He's talking about his power and authority, and all scripture is fulfilled in him. Then in Matthew chapters 8 and 9, what does he do? 
we read of 12 demonstrations of Jesus' power and authority. He shows his authority over disease and illness such as leprosy and paralysis. He raises the dead. He shows his power over demons. He shows his power over nature and storms and blindness. And so the question is asked, why is Jesus doing these things in chapters 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9? Obviously, he is authenticating who he is. He is the Messiah. He's the Redeemer. He's the one that we've waited for. He's the fulfillment of all the scriptures. He's the desire of our heart's hopes and all of our weariness. We're looking for him to be our Savior, to be our Lord, to be the lifter of our burdens here. And if you think of it, again, he starts his ministry with the Father's affirmation, this is my son. He starts his ministry with the power of the Holy Spirit, and then he's demonstrating it in word and deed. So if anyone's paying attention, they're going to say, this Jesus is not just an ordinary prophet. He's just not an ordinary man. This is the Son of God. This is the Messiah. This is the one we can trust. This is the one who will empower us and liberate us and so forth. And if that's not enough, in Matthew chapter 10, what does Jesus do after telling the disciples, hey guys, I want you to pray about, we need more missionaries. And they go, okay, we'll pray. Oh, by the way, you're the answer to your own prayer. I'm sending you out, Matthew chapter 10, and I want you to do the same things that you saw me to do. Teach, proclaim, and heal diseases. I'm going to extend the kingdom so it's not just me doing it, Jesus says, I'm going to send them out. Well, can you imagine the buzz in Galilee at that time when you have all these teams of missionaries going out and up on top of Jesus teaching and preaching and his healing and his miracles? I mean, everybody's saying, wow, what's going to happen next? I think the kingdom is here. The Messiah has come. They're all excited. And if, if we stopped the gospel at Matthew chapter 10, we might say, Jesus is in full stride here. Jesus' mission is, is successful, and the results of his words and works are bearing fruit. Hallelujah! There's no weariness here because everything's coming together. But not everything is as it seems, right? Many times in our life. And that leads us, secondly, to the people's assessment of Jesus' invitation. The people's assessment of what Jesus has been doing and what he's about to say. Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 to 24, describe the response of three different groups to what Jesus has just been doing and saying. The first group are John the Baptist and his disciples, verses 2 to 15, Matthew chapter 11. And these, we could say, are those who are disappointed in Jesus and his ministry so far. There's John, John who started off radical, the Messiah's coming, I'm not worthy to untie his sandal and so forth, he's greater than me, but now John's in prison, he's in a dark, damp cell, and he's wondering, ask Jesus, is he the one who is to come, or should we look for another? Can you imagine the disciples coming from John to Jesus? Uh, Jesus, I know you got off to a great start, but... Nothing's changed for me. In fact, things have gotten worse. I'm in prison. You know, maybe you've been trying to share Jesus with someone at work or a neighbor or a sibling. 
and you've told them about how Jesus has changed your life and, and you know, God blesses you and so forth, and then one suffering and tragedy after another happens to you. And they look at you and say, well, how's this Jesus thing working out for you now? It doesn't seem like it's helping you. That's how it could look at this point. You know, I'm in prison. Should we expect someone else? This group is disappointed with Jesus because they thought they would be way ahead at this point. There's a second group, verses 16 to 19, called this generation. This generation. And here's the people, and you know them, who you can never please. No matter what you do, you can't please them. Maybe sometimes you feel like that in your marriage or with a coworker, or someone at church. No matter what I do, no matter how much energy I pour out, they're never satisfied. And they're complaining to Jesus. And Jesus used the analogy of music. He says, if this band plays a fast, lively tune, they say, too worldly. We don't like it. Too noisy. And if he plays a classical piece, sorry, that's a funeral dirge. You can't please these people no matter what you give them. And the context, of course, is John came preaching a baptism of repentance. They said, he's too stoic. He's too negative. Jesus came banqueting with sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors, and they say, oh, uh, he's too worldly. He's too progressive out there. You can't please these people. Imagine, and you don't have to imagine, you're a mom or dad, you're a teacher, you're a counselor, you're an elder, and no matter what you do, the other person or persons aren't satisfied with you. That makes you weary, doesn't it? You, you shrug your shoulders. What, what am I going to do? I've tried everything. But there's a third group, verses 20 to 24, and that's the self-sufficient. The self-sufficient. These are the folks who had heard Jesus' teaching. They had seen his miracles, and yet they refused to humble themselves, turn from their sin, and follow Jesus. And Jesus says something radical in verses 20 and 24. He says, if the miracles I did in these cities in Galilee, if I did these miracles in Tyre and Sidon and even in Sodom, the people of Sodom would have repented and turned. Think about that. I mean, you think about Sodom and Gomorrah is like the classic, the iconic evil place. Jesus says, the miracles I did were so powerful that if I performed them in Sodom, if I had, the people of Sodom would have repented and wouldn't have been destroyed. Wow. But these people are saying, we don't need you, Jesus. We're self-sufficient. We don't have to repent. We, we don't have to humble ourselves. Can you imagine ministering to this crowd after giving your best, after a dozen or more miracles, demonstrations of the power of God, and the people saying, Puh, blow it off. Now, if you were Jesus at this point, at the end of verse 24 of Matthew 11, and you were about to pray to the Father, given all these negative responses, what might you think Jesus would say? If you were Jesus at this point, I think I would say, Father, I'm weary. I'm discouraged. I've given the best I have, and the people don't think 
I'm living up to their expectations. They're disappointed in me, and I can't please them no matter what I do. Father, just beam me up. There's no intelligent faith on this planet. (laughs) That's what I would do. I would be so weary. As a pastor, I'd resign. As a counselor, I'd give up on somebody. As a mom or dad, maybe I'd say, I need a vacation in Bermuda for two years, okay? (laughs) But what does Jesus say to the Father? Look at verse 25 to 27 as we look at, thirdly, the true worth of Jesus' invitation. The true worth of Jesus' invitation. And I want to read that for you, verses 25 to 27. Jesus prays, I praise you, Father. Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, and you've revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will, for such it pleased you to do. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Let's look at three aspects of what Jesus says here and the true worth behind the invitation that He's going to issue in verse 28 and following. First, it's God's good pleasure to invite the weary to come to Jesus. It is God the Father's good pleasure. He delights in extending through Jesus an invitation to come to the weary. When Jesus says, I praise you, Father, that word literally is, I fully and joyfully confess this. The idea is, I celebrate you, Father. Now again, if I were Jesus, I'd say, beam me up, take me out of here. I'm discouraged, I'm weary, it's not working. But Jesus says, let's celebrate. (laughs) It's an unexpected response, isn't it, in light of the response in verse chapter 11. Jesus says, I cannot help praising and making much of the Father and the special relationship that the Father and I enjoy. And you say, why? What does he see that I don't see? Well, secondly, it's a worthy invitation because the Father has clearly sent the Son on this incredible mission to earth to bring life and rest and relief and forgiveness to those whom God has chosen. And because he chooses us, he knows that we, the chosen, the elect, will respond to his invitation. Jesus doesn't say, I don't know, it's not working out. Is there a plan B? No. The Father sends the Son. There is no plan B because plan A is that all whom the Father has given to the Son will come to the Son. All who are ultimately weary will find their rest in Jesus. And then he prays and praises God that he's done two things that we might think are a bit strange. One, that you have hidden these things from the wise and learned. Do you ever read those parables and, and you say, why wasn't Jesus clearer so that everybody could understand? But again, in God's mercy, those who refuse to humble themselves would only harden their hearts more if they understood more. And so Jesus taught in parables, why? To hide truth from those who would mock it and reject it, but to make it revealed to those who would be 
humble because they knew they were weary, because they knew they were hungry for what Jesus had to give them. And then in verse 27, he says, all things have been committed to me by my Father. I love this picture here. The Father and the Son have this great relationship from all eternity past to all eternity future. It's a divine dance. There's this sacred relationship of love and giving and enjoying each other as Father and Son. And by the way, every good relationship that you enjoy is a shadow, a reflection of that Father-Son relationship. And then Jesus says, oh, and let's let in to this relationship all whom you have chosen, all who know they are weary. Oh, that's what Jesus is celebrating. It doesn't look like things are going well in chapter 11, but it's all according to plan A. The Father has sent his Son on this mission. There's no plan B. And the Father fully trusts in Jesus, his Son, to carry out the plans of redemption on the cross so that the sinless Savior would die for us. Trinity, consider the implications of Jesus' divinity and his unique role as a mediator here by what he's saying. The Father and the Son from all eternity have this plan, and the Father has committed it to the Son. You know, it's like having this most precious uh, ancient or antique vase, and you're gently giving it to another person saying, I want you to have it. Or the father who's built up this great, wonderful business and he's entrusting it now to the son. That's what the father is doing here. It shows us the authority, the power, the greatness of Jesus who's going to issue this invitation, come to me. And thirdly, it's a worthy invitation because those whom he reveals himself to have a front row seat to see the Holy Trinity in action here. There's this divine dance, and again, go back to Matthew chapter 3, right? The, the Spirit coming as a dove, the Father's voice, Jesus coming up from the water. We, we, the heavens part at that point a little bit, and we would see this Holy Trinity in action, in love. And Jesus is saying, when I give my invitation to come to me and find rest, it's not just I have a supernatural lazy boy recliner here for you. I'm inviting you to the rest that you were created and redeemed for to know and enjoy God in all his glory, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so he says, that's been hidden, but now the tarp is coming off. And as people come and see who I am, they're going to see you, Father. They're going to see you, Holy Spirit. And they're going to understand the greatness of the Holy Trinity in action here. It says, Jesus says, for it pleased you to do it this way. Why did it please the Father to do it this way? Think of it. If those who had the PhDs from Harvard were the ones most likely to understand and come to Jesus they would get the glory from their own education and efforts. But he says, I've hidden it from those who think they know it all and are self-sufficient. And who has he revealed it to? Infants, children. I, I think this is partly why, as a parent, but as a grandparent, we are hardwired to spend time with these little kids and love them. There's something about them that Jesus says, if we are like them, 
we will understand the joy of the kingdom and how much we need it there. He says it gives him great pleasure to hide it from those who think they are self-sufficient and to reveal it to those who are worn out spiritually, emotionally, physically, in every way. You know, one of the great pleasures as a pastor is when you uh, officiate at a wedding. And at the end of the wedding, right, you have the bride and groom turn toward the audience and you say, and now it gives me great pleasure to introduce to you for the first time Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so, all right? And I'm smiling, everybody's smiling. It gives me great pleasure. Think about the pleasure it gives the Father to have hidden the treasures of the gospel from those who think they're self-sufficient and to reveal it to children, to reveal it to those who know they're needy, to those who know their bankruptcy and that he has it all. It gives him great pleasure. Hallelujah. So once again, the big picture of the passage. When circumstances wear you out, come to Jesus He lovingly summons you to find your rest and strength in his sovereign care. So let's move forth and last. There's a lot of parts to this, but it is our fourth and last point. The richness and the wonder of Jesus' invitation. And by the way, the temptation for a pastor perhaps is just to take that passage and say, oh, that's a great invitation, right? Everybody needs that. But what we're trying to do is understand the backdrop and the setting so that we can appreciate this invitation in its richness and its wonder. Here is one of the most memorable invitations in the Bible. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Why? For I am gentle and humble or lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I want to call attention to four aspects of this invitation. If you don't get all four, it's okay. Mostly I want you to come to Jesus and find rest for your souls. But the first is consider the one who issues the invitation. Consider the one who issues the invitation. What have we seen about Jesus so far? We've seen that Jesus is the exalted son. He's the one who comes and speaks and acts with authority. He has power over Satan and death and illness. He interprets the whole scripture, and in fact, he's the fulfillment of all scripture. And so he's great and glorious. But what does he say in his invitation? Come to me, for I am gentle and lowly. I don't know what your father was like, but can you imagine an ideal father of someone who is strong, can fix everything, who can just be a bulwark and a rock in times of trouble, and you look to, and yet also is gentle and humble and lowly? He's a man's man, but he also comes with a gentleness that you almost associate with a maternal love. That's who issues the invitation to you. He's strong enough and great enough to deal with your burdens, and he is gentle and lowly to come alongside you as a sympathetic high priest and says, I've been there. I know what you're going through. Um, Will let us off at the 9.30 prayer time by reading Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. We have a sympathetic high priest. He understands the trial. So 
Brothers and sisters, I don't know why you're weary this morning, but Jesus does, and he has experienced your weakness, and he comes alongside you with his power and authority to lift you up, and he comes with his gentleness and lowliness to comfort you and care for you. Hallelujah. Is there anyone else like him? Secondly, we see the necessary response to the invitation. The necessary response to the invitation. That is, come, take my yoke, and learn of me. Just Jesus saying, come to me. Does Muhammad say that? Does Buddha say that? Does a president or a prime minister or a CEO say that? No. But Jesus says, the real rest you need is found in coming to me in faith, in trust. When I was a, a boy, um, my parents often visited the cemetery where their parents and other relatives were uh, buried, a real exciting Sunday afternoon, wearing an itchy suit after church and so forth. And when you get into a large cemetery, it's easy to get lost. But there was a marker for me. I knew about three rows past this marker, I could find all my relatives, even as an adult 30 and 40 years later. It was this huge marker that someone had made. It was the quote from Augustine. Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless till we find our rest in you. And even as a kid, that stuck with me. How much more as a believer now? You've made us for yourself. Jesus says, come. I created you for me. I redeemed you for me. And the reason you're restless is that you're not coming and trusting and leaning and collapsing on me. We come to Jesus in faith and trust as little children, knowing that he is the Lord, he's the one who can support us, and he is gentle and lowly. Jesus is the only person who can give us the rest we need and can give us the joy we need by introducing us to what the Father and Son are doing in all of the world. Then he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. All right, how many of you have a wooden yoke in your garage or shed? All right, all right. But in Jesus' day, we know this wooden tool fashioned so that you could have two strong animals, whether it be an ox or anything else, and you would put them over the necks of these animals so that you could pull efficiently a plow and plow your fields. The yoke was something that harnessed the energy but it wasn't on one animal, it was on at least two. And I think Jesus is saying, again, this is not, come to me and you can sit in the lazy boy recliner. Come to me in your service as a teacher, as a parent, as a pastor, as a counselor, as a friend to others. Come to me and take my yoke, because I'm already in service, and I will give you the energy and I will give you the joy. It's a joyful service. So it's not just absolute rest doing nothing, but he invites us in our weariness to find renewed strength in his framework. Sort of like, and John would be a much better one on this for backpacking, but you know, if you just have your backpack and it doesn't have some kind of framework to it, your back is covering a lot of things. But if there's a 
the right frame to that backpack, it makes the burden lighter. Jesus, it's a poor analogy, but Jesus is that for us. He says, come to me, join me in glad service. And Jesus, when he says, learn of me, he's saying, come into my school of discipleship. And you're saying, I have enough education. I don't have time for that. But you see, Jesus' school of discipleship is open 24-7. And this discipleship is not online. It's face-to-face with Jesus saying, I will be with you. Come to me and let me guide you through your hard, weary experiences. And you will find rest for your souls. Third, the meaning of this invitation, the meaning of this invitation. Did you ever stop and ask yourself, if you stopped at Matthew eleven twenty four, if Jesus could say, come to me, what would he say next if you were writing the Gospel of Matthew? Come to me and find forgiveness. Come to me and find eternal life. Come to me and understand more about the Father. Those would have fit in the context to some degree. But he says, come to me and find rest. And then, what's the meaning of this rest, we might ask? And to understand that, I think we need to look just briefly at the larger context of Matthew and also a parallel passage in Luke chapter 10. Okay, I hope I don't lose you here, but just bear with me. Let's think first about who the original offer of rest was made to. Now, we're not told But if you put Matthew 11 and Luke chapter 10 together, there's some rough parallels there. You can see even in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, that disciples were sent out. And it appears in Luke that they've come back, and then Jesus might be saying something like this. So in other words, the disciples went out, they were casting out demons, they were healing, they were teaching, they were walking up and down the rough roads of Galilee, and they came back with joy... But they were also tired. They were weary. Jesus says in Mark 6.31, you guys are busy. Come away with me and rest for a while in the wilderness. It didn't quite work out that way. But you can see Jesus caring for his disciples. So the original invitation is given to people who are weary in ministry. Weary in serving. Weary in caring for others. And Jesus says, I understand that. And he has particular care for those who are feeling weary in service in the kingdom. Secondly, we also notice what follows Jesus' invitation if we go ahead to Matthew chapter 12. Now, it might come as a great surprise to you, but there are no chapter or verse headings in the original Greek documents here. We tend to come, oh, end of chapter 11, you stop the reading. But it just goes on into chapter 12. And what do we find in the two narratives in the beginning of chapter 12? Jesus is talking about the Sabbath. Huh. Oh, it's a day of rest. And what is Jesus offering us? Come to me and find rest. Ah, maybe he's telling us that part of the rest that we can find is by enjoying the fullness of the Sabbath that he's created. Ah, but there's something else. Because Jesus does two things in those those early narratives in Matthew chapter 12. One, his disciples are hungry and they go through the grain field and they pick the grain and the Pharisees said, you can't work on the Sabbath. And he says, that's a work of necessity. They're hungry and they can eat. And by the way, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. 
So Jesus is saying, I can offer you rest because I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, which is a day of rest, but I am the Lord over all rest. And the next parable, the next, excuse me, uh, narrative is the healing of the man with the shriveled hand. Again, a work of mercy on the Sabbath. And I think just briefly, Jesus is showing us that he, the rest he's calling us to is not the ultimate end. What he's calling us to is to flourish in his kingdom, knowing him, and that may include works of necessity and mercy, even on a Sabbath, but the rest that he wants for you and for me is to cause us to flourish as sons and daughters of the living God, as citizens of his kingdom. And then we also uh, notice that, we don't have time this morning, but if we had time, we would move to Luke chapter 10, which is parallel to what uh, Jesus is saying and doing in Matthew chapter 11. And Luke does not contain the same invitation, come to me. But do you know what it does contain? It contains the story of Martha and Mary. And I, I wonder if the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to say, all right, Matthew, you're going to include the invitation, and Luke, you're going to include a living parable of what that looks like. All right, how many of you, you don't have to raise your hands, but how many of you identify with Martha, right? You've got Thanksgiving coming at your house, and you're, gonna, you're already working on the stuff, the stuffing, the turkey, the pies, and so forth, and there's going to be people coming, and you've got kids, and you're harassed, and you're weary, and you're burdened, and we identify with Martha. I'm so, and, and Martha has the martyr complex, right? Look at my sister. She's not doing anything. Give me a hand in here. And we get worn out doing that. And Jesus says, Martha, look at Mary. At this time, she's sitting at my feet. She's resting. She's soaking up a relationship. Now, there is a time to get dinner ready, okay? Again, remember, rest isn't the ultimate goal. It's flourishing in the kingdom. But Martha's problem was she was anxious and worried about many things. And Mary was focusing on coming to Jesus. So I think there's a parallel there um, with what's happening. As R.T. France comments, the rest that Jesus offers is not a release from all our obligations. The rest that Jesus offers is not a rest from all our obligations. But because of who Jesus is, his demands are such that to respond to his demands is rest and relief. So again, it's not the spiritual lazy boy. It's not rest is ultimate, but it's resting in who Jesus is as he empowers us in service, in life, in worship, and everything else. And finally, and thank you for being patient as I work through this, we see the nature of the invitation, the nature of the invitation. And I would suggest to you that what Jesus says here is both a gracious invitation and it is a divine summons. A gracious invitation and a divine summons. It's an invitation in that he calls us and he desires that we would say, yes, Lord, I am weary, I'm burdened. I want so much to have the rest that you can give me. Jesus, take me, I'm yours. Do you ever pray that? I just, you're on your knees. And brothers and sisters, 
I feel for, I feel for all of you because it's a tough, broken world. And there are so many ways in which you today might feel weary and burdened. Some of you are weary from, for caring for sick children and or an elderly parent who might have dementia. Some of you are weary with shepherding the flock as a pastor, an elder, or a counselor. Some of you are burdened with trying to get off the burden of an addiction for yourself or a loved one, whether it be drugs, alcohol, or pornography. Some of us are weary because we've been laboring under a false guilt that a parent or a sibling has put on us. And that person might be deceased, but we're still laboring under a false guilt that they laid on us. How many of you are weary of well-doing? And like Martha, you feel like a martyr. And you're you're begrudging the fact that others aren't doing what you're doing. You're weary in well-doing. Perhaps you're worn out by trying to live up to the expectations of others or even yourself as a perfectionist. Is legalism wearing you out? Some of you grew up in very legalistic, fundamental churches And that still nags at you. I've got to earn my merit before God, even though you know you're saved by grace through faith. Or maybe you're just tired of being tired. (laughs) To all of you, Jesus whispers, come to me and I will give you rest for your souls. So it's a gracious invitation, but it is also a divine summons For two years, Lynn and I lived in the royal Hashemite kingdom of Jordan. And we actually lived under a king, King Hussein, and he was a good king. And we didn't get a divine summons from the king to come to the palace. But we had the next best thing. The second in command at the American embassy was a believer. And every now and then, we were dirt poor missionaries. Every now and then, he would extend an invitation a royal invitation to come to a banquet that was way beyond what we were used to. I mean, people way up here, VIPs and so forth. Well, when you get an invitation like that, do you say to your wife or husband, I don't know, do you think we should go? Is anything coming up better? No! Wow! Let's go! We'll get a babysitter. We'll do anything. A divine summon. So yes, it's a gracious invitation to those who are weary. Come to me but it's being issued by the King of Kings. And what did Jesus say earlier? Thank you, Father, that you've revealed it to those whom you have chosen. And so all those who are chosen, all those who are sovereignly elected, will respond to the divine summons. The King has issued an irresistible call to join him at his banqueting table of salvation, or to put it in slang today, He makes you an offer you can't refuse. I'll conclude with this thought. Uh, Lynn and I raised five sons and a foster son, and now we have six active grandkids. 
Um, and you know the scene if you're a parent, a grandparent, or you're a teacher. You're with your kids, and it's a beautiful day, and they're playing outside, and they're running, and there's games and activities and so forth. And then it's about 15 minutes or 10 minutes before dinner. And especially for boys, all of a sudden, their blood sugar drops to zero, and they have nothing in their tank physically, and you know what happens. They have a meltdown, right? Uncontrollable sobbing. And you can't reason with them at that point. Now, just in 10 minutes, there'll be dinner and so forth. When they have that meltdown, what do you do? You pick them in your arms. You hold them. You calm them. You start singing, Jesus loves you. You rock them. And Lord willing, after just a minute, they start calming down and start crying, stop crying, because they know that they've come into the arms of someone who is strong and who loves them. And in the same way, Jesus is saying to us today, I know your uncontrollable tears. I know your weariness. Come to me again and again. Come to the cross of Jesus where you can find forgiveness for your sin and your shame taken away. Come to the resurrected Jesus where you can see your names engraven on the palms of Jesus' hand. When circumstances wear you out, come to Jesus. He lovingly summons you to find your rest and your strength in his sovereign care. Amen. Mike's going to pray for us. Lord Jesus, it is um, something to ponder that you both give us a gracious invitation and it is a divine summons. Um, a gracious invitation out of your love and mercy And in truth, a divine summons, because there is nowhere else for us to go. Um, Lord, your word talks about how it is the humble who responded to you, who heard. Just as Peter had to come to the place time and time again where he realized <clears throat> both his own lack of worth, uh, but realized your supreme good and that there there was only one thing for him to do, and that was to look to you and ask for mercy. Uh, Lord, we ask for your help understanding how it is to have a rest in the midst of our labor, that we do not have an attitude that we are supposed to get a rest where we sit back and do nothing, but Lord Jesus, that we learn how to be yoked with you and have your rest. For, Lord, you tell us that we are to abide in you and your Holy Spirit is to abide in us. And in one sense, it is not us doing the work at all, but it is you. Um, 
Help us, Lord, to grapple with the many facets of these things, uh, each one of us individually, where you need to give light, give strength. Amen.